the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering and we are all sheltering in place maintaining appropriate social distancing. I hope you're doing the same, as difficult and challenging uh, as it is. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Don Everts. He's the author of The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. It's based on a study that was done recently on uh, Christian homes and the impact that their lifestyle, if you will, has on their effectiveness in uh, and witness and discipleship and so on. So we're looking forward to talking with Don Everts about that new book. We're also going to take a look and have a brief conversation with an advertiser from one of our sister stations to give us a glimpse of some of the challenges businesses in our community are having and how we can come alongside and support them. First, taking a look at some of the headlines, the president has blasted the World Health Organization, saying every step they have made, everything they have said was wrong and always in favor of China. Well, the U.S. is rethinking the funding of the World Health Organization, or WHO. National Review Editorial Board writes that Congress should investigate Chinese influence on the WHO, and the U.S. should use its ample funding of the organization as leverage to demand transparency about its dealings with China. Our continued participation in the WHO should be in play. It is, or rather, in its moment of testing, the organization kowtowed to Beijing rather than serve the public interest, and the world paid the price. The New York Times responded as well with this overtly biased tweet saying President Trump threatened to withhold funding from the World Health Organization even as a deadly virus ravages nations around the globe. He tried to blame the WHO for the very missteps and failures that have been uh, leveled at him and his administration. Uh, consistently, the New York Times siding with the People's Republic of China. And the media is still reporting Chinese numbers as if true from NBC News yesterday. U.S. reports 1,264 coronavirus deaths in over 24 hours. Meanwhile, in China, where the pandemic broke out, not a single new coronavirus death was reported. Nikki Haley, a former U.N. ambassador, says, come on, NBC News, this is embarrassing. You discredit yourself when you tout China's propaganda. Know your source. Ted Cruz, the senator, said under the foreign Agents Registration Act 22 U.S.C. 611 at, at SEC, I'm pretty sure NBC is now legally obligated to close every broadcast with and append to every tweet this message paid for by the Communist Party of China. Ouch. And it goes on from there. The Wisconsin election results, well, they're not expected until next Tuesday. The federal judge ordered clerks to not report results as voters had an additional week to turn in absentee ballots. They reported long lines despite the fact that the vote took place during the pandemic. From the Wall Street Journal, Wisconsin held its election Tuesday on schedule despite coronavirus, and Democrats are blaming the Supreme Court for endangering public health. That's not what happened. On Monday night, the justices rightly reversed a district judge last-minute order that would have allowed Wisconsin ballots to be cast after the election was legally over. The confusing episode is a reminder that, even in a pandemic, steps as grave as rewriting voting rules 
should be up to the elected representatives and not freelanced by judges. Senator Rand Paul, who had COVID-19, is volunteering at local hospitals. He's now fully recovered and now helping others. Well, doctors and nurses say ex-spouses are trying to take their children, and some are succeeding. From the story, Dr. Bertha Mayerquin, a New Jersey physician, told her soon-to-be ex-husband that there was a change in plans. After two weeks of providing treatment by video as a precaution against the coronavirus, she would resume seeing patients in person. But when she left work on a Friday to pick up her two daughters for the weekend, her husband presented her with a court order granting him sole temporary custody of their young girls. His lawyer had convinced the judge that Dr. Mayerquin could expose the children, 11 and 8, to COVID-19. I'm not sure how you could argue effectively against that, but this is a concern among those who are on the front lines. Well, COVID-19 odds and ends in one Detroit hospital, 734 employees tested positive. In Germany, they're allowing certified recovered residents to step up lockdown, or rather sidestep lockdown, an idea that could come to the States. But according to another story, some South Koreans are already getting the virus a second time. Social distancing appears to be working. And from Alex Berenson, great New York data, hospitalizations tend to rise some on Mondays, but the trend is still, the trend rather is still clear. Net intubations rose by less than 100, down 80% since Friday. A fantastic day for reality, a terrible day for team apocalypse. And according to one report, the situation in Ecuador is dire, with corpses littering the streets there. The latest U.S. numbers, well, we'll share them with you in a few moments, as well as some around the world. And for those of you who enjoy interactive COVID-19 graphs, there are lots of them online if you'd like to see where we stand in relation to other parts of the globe. On this day in history, 1513, explorer Juan de Ponce de Leon, I used to know how to say that well, claimed Florida for Spain. That didn't stick. 1913, the 17th Amendment to the Constitution providing for the popular election of U.S. senators was ratified. 1918, on this day, First Lady Betty Ford was born, Elizabeth Bloomer in Chicago. And on this day in history, 1935, the Works Progress Administration was approved by Congress. 1952, President Harry S. Truman seized the steel industry to avert a nationwide strike. And in 2005, on this date, world leaders joined pilgrims and prelates in St. Peter's Square for the funeral of Pope John Paul II. 2009, Somali pirates hijacked the U.S. flag, Maersk, Alabama. The crew retook the cargo ship, and Navy uh, sharpshooters killed two pirates holding the ship's American captain. And finally, on this day in history, 2011, congressional and White House negotiators struck a last-minute budget deal ahead of a midnight deadline, averting a federal shutdown and cutting billions in spending. Spending. It's not quite so novel as it was back then. It seems to be happening more frequently today. Well, earlier this afternoon, Governor Brown, she made an announcement that schools in the state of Oregon will remain closed for the remainder of the year. The Oregon governor announced Wednesday that schools will remain closed. I know how hard this is for every single Oregonian. I thank you for your sacrifice, she said. I wish I could make it easier for everyone. I wish I could eliminate the frustration everyone feels. But the best thing we can do for the health of our children is to give everyone certainly by certainty by announcing the decision to close in-person classes for the remainder of the school year. To all the moms and dads, I can't imagine what you're up against, she said. I can't imagine uh, it's surprising to... 
uh, everyone that we've really been struggling at how to provide education guidance during these extraordinary times. She also said she knows there is a lot of anxiety about how we will move forward. She acknowledged that the vulnerable students are at the forefront of her mind when making the policy decision and expressed concern for graduating seniors, saying all seniors who are on track to graduate will be able to do so. She said this was also to keep Oregon's graduation rates on track. The closure is also extended to post-secondary education, where distance learning is also mandatory. The briefing took place at the Oregon Health Authority this afternoon alongside Oregon Department of Health Director Colt Gill and OHA Chief Medical Officer Dr. Dana Herangani. Brown first announced a statewide closure for all K-12 schools on the 12th of March over the virus concerns. That closure was supposed to end at the end of the month. However, five days later, Brown extended the closure through the 28th of April and now through the end of the year. When asked about uh, whether or not seniors would likely have the opportunity to enjoy a graduation ceremony, uh, the Oregon Department of Education Director Colt Gill could not give any promises. He says they're continuing to monitor what's happening and encourage the community to be creative about alternatives, ways for these students to be acknowledged for the sacrifices and the accomplishments that they have made in their education. So an announcement that I'm certain is not too much of a surprise, but a sad announcement for teachers and students alike, and particularly for those who are matriculating uh, either out of high school or into high school, uh, where those graduating ceremonies are not likely to take place. Bernie Sanders suspended his Democratic presidential campaign today, effectively ensuring former Vice President Joe Biden will be the party's nominee, even as the liberal Vermont senator vowed to continue to lead his movement into the future. The senator, at one point the frontrunner of the nomination, initially announced the decision during an all-staff conference call on Wednesday morning and followed up with an address live-streamed to supporters shortly before noon. Citing Biden's lead of more than 300 convention delegates, uh, Sanders declared the path toward victory is virtually impossible. He went on to say, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. I do not make this decision lightly. In a curious moment, though, Sanders said that Biden will be the nominee, yet uh, went on to stress the importance of continuing to win delegates for his own campaign so he'll be able to exert influence on the party's platform. You add that with Elizabeth Warren, who's been largely silent in these past few weeks and months, and he could continue to be a formidable opponent of the uh, now, I guess you could call him the Democratic nominee de facto. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to talk with Bo Caldwell. He's vice president of Price Financial Group Wealth Management. We'll talk about the impact on our, uh, of this uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, and the new normal on this financial institution. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, we're all trying to adjust to this new normal. I just read the headline a moment ago. S&P 500 joins Dow in exiting bear market as Sanders supports presidential campaign. We're hearing about unemployment, the economic downturn, what's happening to my 401k. And we wonder about small and big businesses alike, how all of this is having an impact on them. Well, we're going to be... uh, hosting a series of conversations with business people from our community to get some understanding of the challenges they face and how we might support one another. I wanted to begin with Bo Caldwell. He is the vice president of Price Financial Group Wealth Management. He's a certified financial planner, chartered financial consultant, accredited asset management specialist, and he specializes in holistic financial planning. He's living through all of this with the rest of us, and so I'm anxious to hear 
uh, how he's coping and how we might uh, support one another. Bo Caldwell, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, let me ask you to give a brief explanation to our listeners of what you do on a good day. Sure. Yeah. Well, you you covered it pretty well um, in the intro. I really appreciate it. But we we're a holistic, you know, wealth management firm, and what that means is we you know, we cover everything from soup to nuts with folks, you know, talking about retirement planning, um, investment planning, investment management, you know, tax planning, estate planning. You you name it. We we try to help folks navigate through you know, their financial lives, anything with a dollar sign on it um, yeah. so on a good day, <laughs> like you said. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think for a lot of us, we might have felt confident, say, four weeks ago about our 401k, about, you know, handling our taxes and the way our businesses were going or our personal finance. All of that has changed now. How has this impacted you and your industry and you in particular in your work? That's a really good question. It, you know, it's affected me very similarly to the way it's probably affecting a lot of your listeners where my 401k balance went down, right? And the, the difference between me and, and folks who are investing their own money is I'm responsible for, you know, a, a lot of our, a lot of our neighbors here in town, their investable dollars as well. And so it, financial planners or, you know, investment advisors are not immune to mm-hmm. the, you know, stock market and the movements and the different things that, that happen. So we've been dealing a lot with Managing expectations, you know, we've been talking about something like this happening, obviously not the coronavirus, right? But, you know, the, this pullback in the market and, and markets fluctuate, the volatility is totally normal. So we've been trying to manage our clients' expectations around that. But then it's a lot of hand-holding because people are scared, you know. Yeah. Like you said, what's happening with my 401k? You see the headlines, you know, with the S&P and different movements in the market. And a lot of folks, because they're professionals in other departments, they're not professionals in the financial world. So it's a lot of handholding is the wrong term, but I, I use it a lot. It's just a lot of coaching people through how to manage their emotions and try and teach them not to be emotional with their money, but try to be tactical and, you know, and smart. And that can be so challenging. And of course, today we can't hold hands. So a little management is, is very, uh, very helpful. Now for listeners today who are concerned and have questions about uh, their 401k or uh, their social security benefits or unemployment and, and their, um, their credit score and so on, given all of this, how might you help them to think through and navigate through this challenging time? As we want to encourage our listeners to connect with uh, our friends and advertisers, um, how, how might you be able to help them? Well, I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, the biggest thing, the first caveat is always consult with folks who own tax or financial professional, or if you'd like to give us a call, we're happy to do that. But what the big thing is don't panic, right? So if folks have a strategy, if folks are um, trying not to live emotionally as much as it's hard to manage emotion, but if they want to give our office a call, what we're doing for folks here in, you know, in the Portland metro area here, our neighbors, is we do a complimentary you know, consultation to take a look at what you're doing in your situation and, you know, and make adjustments as we can if folks decide to work with us then we talk through that, but there's no obligation and no cost to have a, a sit down virtually. Like you said, we're not, we're not <laughs> able to you know, hold hands or we're not able to necessarily sit down face to face right now, but what an amazing time we're living in that we can do things virtually either over the phone or, you know, yeah. over video conferencing, but just to yeah. give them a second opinion and get them on track to make sure that they're moving towards their financial goals. But let me just ask you your, uh, your opinion. Of course, there's a lot that's unknown at this point. Are you optimistic that given a sufficient amount of time that may be as, as, as few as two months and as many as six to eight months, 
that we're going to get back to the economy that we once enjoyed? Or is this going to be a process that's going to take a longer period of time before we get back to where we can sigh a sigh of relief, generally speaking? Right. Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think, yeah. I think it's going to take more than just a couple of months, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Our economy was really strong before yes. this happened. Maybe the market was overpriced, and I think it was in terms of just the values were so high. But the fundamentals in our country were so strong before we had this sort of medically induced coma, right, financially. Yeah. And I think we will get back to that, but I think it's going to be different. I, you know, the way that I liken it is to kind of how things changed after September 11th and how things changed after the financial crisis in the mid-2000s. Mm. It doesn't mean it's bad that it'll be, just be a, a new normal. I think you mentioned that in the, you know, in the, yeah. in the comeback there, the rejoin there. We're, we're going to have a completely different situation. I think it's people are going to be cautious to go out to restaurants, to go out to a ball game, to go to a concert, at least at first until they can feel safe. So I think that's going to be slower than we think. But in terms of the way companies are, the banks are in a totally different situation than they were in the financial crisis. They're much stronger position. I think the federal government has done, you know, has been on the, you know, the everything in the kitchen sink out to try and help um, individuals and small businesses. And I think they're doing a lot of good with that. So I'm, I'm thinking it's somewhere in between. You gave me two scenarios. Is it going to take year, months and years? I think by this time next year, I think we're probably back to around the same place that we were. Maybe not all-time highs in the market, but I think we're going to be up. You know, I think we're, it'll be a bounce, bumpy road to get there by this time next year. My crystal ball, at least, <laughs> says that I think we're going to be, we're going to be back, to, you know, back to where we were before this whole crisis happened. And I'm confident in the leadership you know, that we're going to get, that we're going to get you know, a vaccine and therapeutics and all mm-hmm. those things, which take time. But yes. eventually, I think that, you know, the, the people who are way smarter than I are working on it. So yeah. I think that I'm confident <laughs> that they'll get it figured out. Way smarter than both of us. A couple of <laughs> things, it seems to me you're, you're advising us to do. One is uh, to be patient, and the other is to resist the emotional response that might uh, lead us to make decisions that are not ultimately in our best interest. Absolutely. The second part, particularly. Yes, patience is key. When you're an investor, if you're talking about your 401k or investing your dollars, if you're investing for the long term, then buying stuff on sale, you know, is a really good time to buy, right? And if you're investing for the long term, eventually, historically speaking, when markets, you know, have a pullback like they did, they not only get back to where they were before, but they end up higher. And so folks who performed the worst in the 2000, you know, 2008, 2009, financial crisis were the folks who got out at the bottom because they just couldn't take it anymore. They panicked and acted emotionally and then never got back in. Yeah. That being said, it, it depends on your time horizon, right? So for, for those listeners who are approaching retirement or in retirement, maybe what they need to do is instead of acting emotionally, but sit down with a professional, go over what's called their risk tolerance, just review how much, what kind of roller coaster are they able and willing to ride, right? You don't want to get off in the middle of a ride but maybe you're on the wrong roller coaster. So kind of making sure that they're aligning those two things. And then that gets them a strategy that they can go back to when things get emotional. Cause this is yeah. going to happen. This sort of a pullback market, not hopefully not health crisis, but financially, you know, every 10 years or so we have a big event where the market comes down significantly. So if they have a strategy that they can get behind and feel comfortable with, then it helps to take that emotion out of it. You know, the old adage of set it and forget it or, or don't look at it doesn't mean we don't want to be monitoring, but if you can know with confidence, hey, my, my goals are going to be funded, my income is going to be good, I'm going to be able to, to make it through retirement, 
then it shouldn't matter what the market's doing because you know that you're taking advantage of the opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bo Camp uh, Caldwell is the vice president of Price Financial Group Wealth Management. He has a program on our sister station, AM860, The Answer. And we really want to encourage our listeners to consider our advertisers uh, when deciding where they're going to go to seek information, in this case, on finances or other resources as well. Now, you mentioned earlier, and it seemed to me, based on our conversation, it's a good idea to sit down and talk with a professional, or at least sit down in your home by phone. How can our listeners connect with you for a consultation to do that basic review to see if maybe I need more help than, uh, uh, than just putting a pencil to paper in my own, uh, my own office? Absolutely. You can give our office a call, which is 503-253-3000. We're right here in Portland. We're a local business. Or they can always drop me an email, and my email is bo, B-O, just like my name, at pfgwm.com. They can also visit our website. We have a lot of good resources for folks. You mentioned Social Security or retirement planning. We have a lot of free stuff that doesn't come with any sort of you know, hooks in it. We're, not, you know, we're not, uh, not a multi-level marketing firm, right? So they, you know, we just try to get as much information out to our to our neighbors and to our community as possible just what you know the old adage that we've lived by for years is you know what you don't know can hurt you so just as much information as you know we can provide to folks and and provide that value and again that telephone number 503-253-3000 or bo and that's just b-o at pfgwm.com. I so appreciate your service to our community, your support of uh, our radio stations, and I hope our listeners will take advantage of the great resource that you have uh, to provide during this challenging season and beyond. Bo Caldwell, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, and you know, good luck out there. And this uh, common phrase is, this too shall pass, right? We'll get through Absolutely. this Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Again, All Bo right, Caldwell is uh, Vice President of Price Financial Group Wealth Management, that number 503 253 3000. You're listening to Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, this being Holy Week, is Holy Wednesday. Now, although it's less observed than Maundy Thursday or Good Friday in many churches today, Holy Wednesday highlights key moments in the lead up to the crucifixion during Christianity's most sacred week. We are in the middle of it, although it may not feel quite like it because we are socially distanced. It's also called Spy Wednesday. And last Wednesday before Easter Sunday is celebrated in Eastern Orthodox churches, but less so in other denominations, according to uh, Got Questions Ministries. Uh, It's called Spy Wednesday because it is traditionally thought of as the day Judas Iscariot conspired to betray Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. The beginning of Matthew 26 appears to place Judas plotting it two days before Good Friday. And although the Bible doesn't specifically mention this particular day, according to tradition and traditional interpretation of Scripture, it was on a Wednesday when a woman anointed Jesus with nard, a costly aromatic oil. Well, as described in the 26th chapter of Matthew, verses 6 through 13, Jesus was at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany when a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of this expensive ointment and poured it on his head. Well, the disciples thought it was wasteful and objected, arguing that it could have been sold for a large sum and be distributed to the poor. Well, Jesus pushed back, however, and said, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, 
She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I have just fulfilled that uh, that saying. Well, Pyrenard is the liquid form of spikenard. It's a root which only grows in the Himalayan mountains. It was difficult to obtain. It was quite pricey. The fragrance of the oil was so strong that when Jesus was anointed, the scent filled the room. Some have suggested that in light of how soon he was crucified after that, that scent, that oil, remained with him and comforted him amid his agony on the cross. So it's an interesting thought that he could still recall that fragrance, which uh, was uh, was put on him that day. Well, the story is recounted in all four of the Gospels. It underscores its importance. And though Luke's account records it as taking place in the northern region, as it uh, is said, Jesus was ministering in Nain and Capernaum, the woman in Luke's account is not named. In Luke and John, it is noted that the woman used her hair to dry the feet of Jesus, an extraordinary gesture. The timing of the event, where it occurred, in addition to the identity of the woman, has long been debated in light of the differences in the gospel accounts. But on this Holy Wednesday, we recall that Jesus was anointed by a woman with costly uh, oil and that that very scent may have remained with him on the cross. Reverend David Fleener, um, who stood in the New York City morgue looking at the body of someone's mother as a chaplain for Mount Sinai Hospital, death was always been part of his job, but not like this, not For so many, holding a telephone to his ear, he tried to soothe the son, telling his mom all the things the young man wished he could say to her in person. I'm sorry I can't be there. I love you. But even now, as the image of heartbreak piles up in his mind, he calls it a privilege to be the hurting city's proxy. Tony Perkins brings this story to our attention and points out that like doctors and nurses, Reverend Fleener, who is a chaplain, has been on the front lines of the virus for weeks. In normal times, he says, one of the big challenges in chaplaincy under non-pandemic circumstances is how do we get to the neediest patients first? Now with the crisis claiming thousands of lives a day in some areas, there's no hospital in America that has enough chaplains, which is why he insists every one of them is essential. Rabbi Carrie Tav understands all too well. Her Facebook feed has been full of suffering she's seen as a manager of a spiritual care services at another hospital in New York City. She struggles to keep it together most days, saying the virus has made her job a living hell. That's a quote. Normally my job is to listen, to comfort, to pray for healing. Now my job is to pray for a swift and merciful death for most of my patients. I hold weeping, sweaty-faced nurses through gloves and masks to whom I promise their work is meaningful and changing lives. I promise them that it's okay to feel bone tired, that everyone's living with nightmares, that they're going to get sick. I have spent this morning making condolence calls, 30 deaths over the weekend. We normally have five. Rabbi Tav and Reverend Fleener, they've been lucky. They both work at hospitals that consider their positions critical. Until last week, not all of them could, despite the fact that hundreds of chaplains have been calling into hospitals and volunteering their services. A lot of healthcare facilities will still Uh, We're still confused about who could and couldn't be walking the hallways during the crisis. In an issue of the Family Research uh, Council's uh, newsletter, uh, they took up privately with the uh, Trump administration, first with the Department of Homeland Security and later the vice president, Mike Pence, who is a devout Christian. If we take clergy into battle, I urge, then we should take uh, we should be taking them into this one. More than ever, America needs its spiritual leaders. In situations as dire as this, we need clergy to be treated like first responders, moving and ministering on the front lines. 
The vice president promised to look into it, and we're happily happy uh, to announce he did. Last week, um, uh, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services definitive uh, provided a definitive list of personnel for federal agencies. It now includes clergy for essential support. Uh, that's a game changer, not just for the patients and for the parents of the dying, but for maxed out hospital workers who are struggling to take care of everyone else. Deep down, every one of them needs to know they're not alone. It's the uh, closest thing to war many of them will ever see. Pray for us, one nurse said as she walked by the chaplain every morning. Pray that we make it through the day. It reminds us uh, so much of the time that we've seen with veterans in Desert Storm and in other conflicts where men and women in combat are facing significant challenges and find some comfort in a chaplain. Well, that's what these uh, men and women are now being permitted to do thanks to the work of the Family Research Council and the vice president and now a directive from the Department of um, Human Services allowing them to be considered essential as are others who are on the front lines of this pandemic. Well, the number of positive coronavirus cases in the U.S. jumped by 400,000 on Wednesday, just a day after the country saw its deadliest day yet. A tally by Johns Hopkins University showed the number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. at 401,166, keeping it as the hardest hit country in the world. Well, the daily death toll, the coronavirus across the country hit uh, 1,939 on Tuesday, which was the highest single day total for any country since the virus was first detected in China late last year. According to Johns Hopkins University's tally, the death toll in the U.S. inched closer to 13,000 on Wednesday. At least 22,553 people across the country have recovered from the virus, and we should take some comfort and consolation in that. New York City, the epicenter for the outbreak in the U.S., saw its death toll rise past 4,000 on Tuesday. The virus has now killed more than 1,000 more people than on 9-11. As of Wednesday morning, the city has seen at least 76,876 positive coronavirus cases, the most in any U.S. city, with more than 140,000 confirmed throughout the state. More than 800 fatalities uh, attributed to the virus were recorded to um, New York in just 24 hours following a brief decrease uh, earlier in the week. Well, the five hardest hit states in the U.S. are now New York, New Jersey, Michigan, California, and Louisiana, with a combined total of 237,600 cases in each uh, locality. According to the university's tally, the five hardest-hit countries are the United States, Spain, Italy, France, and Germany. China is currently number six, if its numbers are to be believed, and we'll talk more about that later. The U.S. has surpassed China with 9,500 deaths based on what the country is currently reporting. Wuhan, the Chinese city originally described as the virus epicenter, reopened on Wednesday after being in lockdown for more than two months. Uh, says uh, one resident there, I haven't been outside for more than 70 days, seven zero days. He watched a celebratory light display from a bridge across the Yangtze River flowing through the city. Beijing indoors for um, so long drove me crazy, he said. So we share that in common with our brothers and sisters all across the globe. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, on Wednesday, they called for more than $500 billion in additional funding for what they termed an interim emergency coronavirus package. We'll tell you more about that when we return from the break, and we do need to take one. Also want to remind you, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Don Everts. His latest book, The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. This is, I think, his 13th book. He'll join us to talk about that. 
in the next hour of The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Wednesday afternoon. Don Everts will join us in the 5 o'clock hour of the Spiritually Vibrant Home. Hope you can stay with us for that. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority, rather Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, that's uh, sort of wishful thinking on his part, on Wednesday called for more than $500 billion in additional funding for what they termed an interim emergency coronavirus package before Congress even gets around to tackling a new full-blown relief bill. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is considering changing its guidelines for self-isolation to make it easier for those who have been exposed to someone with the coronavirus to return to work if they are without symptoms. And Dr. Zeke Emanuel, an advisor to Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and an architect of Obamacare, said this week that Americans could be dealing with the strict social distancing measures to combat the coronavirus for 18 months and that the U.S. will not be able to return to normalcy until we find a vaccine or effective medications. Now, that's a prediction on his part. Most would say that is uh, probably uh, more than we um, can anticipate, but nonetheless. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases and face of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, predicted that the United States could be able to reopen schools in the fall. The U.S. equity markets rallied on Wednesday with optimism that the hospitalizations related to the coronavirus are beginning to plateau in some of the hardest hit areas of the country. And the NFL draft scheduled to take place between the 23rd and 25th of April will be fully virtual with prospects, coaches, general managers and executives stuck at home to make their selections. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell made it clear there would be no group gatherings. And more than 2,200 employees at two major health systems in Michigan have either tested positive for the novel coronavirus or have symptoms, according to multiple reports. And people infected with COVID-19 may spread the disease when they speak and breathe. Now, they're not suggesting you stop breathing, but it's sobering to consider, not only when they let out a hearty cough, according to a new report. That explains, at least in part, while they're suggesting Uh, that we should wear masks when we leave our uh, residence uh, to go into public places like the grocery store. General Motors has signed a $489.4 million contract with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to build 30,000 ventilators for the national stockpile under the Defense Production Act invoked by President Trump. And more than half of the passengers and crew aboard the Aurora Expeditions cruise to Antarctica have tested positive for coronavirus. More than half, the ship's operator says. Many will be celebrating the Jewish holiday of Passover at home due to the coronavirus pandemic, but that isn't stopping family and friends from gathering for a virtual Seder or Passover meal. Well, the UK has suppressed uh, coronavirus ravaged Italy's deadliest day after Brit's 938th Brit died from the disease, uh, taking the grim total to over 7,000. Positive cases in the U.K. also hit 60,733. That's up from 55,000 infections yesterday. The Department of Health today confirmed a total of 7,000 have died in the U.K. from the uh, uh, virus COVID-19. And the figure was uh, expected to be higher, uh, high rather, as yesterday. U.K.'s uh, total death toll uh, did not include Manchester, Leeds or Northern Ireland. And the true death toll is actually higher as the DOH um, figures today did not factor in Northern Ireland, Southampton or Charing Cross due to a processing delay. Well, the jump in the number of deaths is uh, 
higher than Italy's worst day when 919 people died. Uh, Italy has seen one of the worst outbreaks in the world with 17,127 deaths and 135,000 cases. The toll had dropped for two days, running on Sunday and Monday, but this was the same pattern as last Monday, suggesting a possible lag in deaths recorded over the weekend. So not necessarily a lag in the number of deaths, but a lag in the number of deaths reported. Well, coronavirus particles could stay in the air for several minutes. That's according to a study adding to the importance of avoiding heavily populated indoor places. Preliminary results indicate that aerosol particles carrying the virus can remain in the air longer than was originally thought. So it's important to avoid busy public indoor spaces, the researchers explained in a statement. This also reduces the risk of droplet infection, which remain the main path of transmission for coronavirus. It's amazing to consider how our breathing, our speaking, our coughing, uh, how that circulates in an area and we impact one another. We tend to think we can avoid that, but apparently we really cannot. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently recommended wearing cloth face coverings in public settings where other social distancing measures are difficult to maintain, like grocery stores or pharmacies. This is particularly important, they say, in areas of significant community-based transmission. Well, the research was undertaken by experts from uh, Finland's um, Alto University, the Finnish Meteorological Institute, and VTT Technical Research Center in Finland and the University of Finland. Experts studied how small airborne aerosol particles are transported in the air when emitted from the respiratory tract when sneezing, coughing, or even talking. The researchers modeled a scenario where a person coughs in an aisle between shelves, like those found in grocery stores. And taking into consideration the ventilation, they said in a statement, each research institution prefer- performed rather its model independently but employed the same starting conditions. The researchers all obtained the same preliminary result. In the situation under investigation, the aerosol cloud that all of us produces spreads outside the immediate vicinity of the coughing person and dilutes in the process. They explained in a statement, however, this can take up to several minutes. Uh, The study could have major implications for the spread of coronavirus. Someone infected by the uh, COVID-19 can cough and walk away, but they leave behind extremely small aerosol particles carrying the coronavirus. Uh, These particles could then end up in the respiratory tract of others in the vicinity. In their study, the researchers modeled the airborne movement of aerosol particles smaller than 20 micrometers, noting that the particle size for a dry cough is typically less than 15 micrometers. Extremely small particles of this size do not sink on the floor, but instead move along in the air currents or remain floating in the same same place. The coronavirus pandemic has resulted in a flood of research across the globe that will be useful in the future for all kinds of things. Uh, In a separate study, Yale researchers say that they may get uh, some respite from the pandemic as we move into spring, although this depends on how indoor environments adapt. While the effectiveness of social distancing measures obviously plays a crucial role in battling the spread of COVID-19, the scientists are also eyeing changes in relative humidity indoors from winter to spring to summer. The scientist's research was published, by the way, uh, last month in the annual review of virology. As of Wednesday morning, at least 1.45 million coronavirus cases have been diagnosed worldwide. When Kristen Renton, who's an actress, she's from Valencia, California, she started experiencing symptoms of lupus. It's an autoimmune disease that causes the body to attack its own tissues and organs. 
Some 10 years ago, it took five doctors to finally receive a proper diagnosis. I have friends with lupus. I've followed this, this uh, process over over time. Well, after suffering painful symptoms of a disease, which can include fever, fatigue, joint pain, and swelling, a butterfly-shaped rash on her face, skin lesions, she found relief when she was prescribed uh, Plaquenil, the brand name for hydroxychloroquine, uh, an anti-malarial drug that hit the market back in the 1950s and has since become a common treatment option for lupus patients. We might get where I'm going. To say the medication helped her is an understatement, she says. She appeared on TV shows such as Sons of Anarchy and Days of Our Lives. Uh, She's become an actress. But the actress, one of the estimated 1.5 million lupus patients in the U.S., now worry about her well-being, worries about her well-being, not only because she's more at risk for the novel coronavirus itself. Lupus patients are generally considered to be immune compromised and therefore at a greater risk for infections overall, but because the medication that changed her life is now in scant supply. It's being used and applied to those who are suffering from COVID-19. The drug recently made headlines when it was uh, touted as a possible treatment for COVID-19. The novel coronavirus that is um, that as of Tuesday has sickened nearly 370,000 and killed more than 10,000 in the U.S. alone. The effectiveness of the drug has been a source of debate within the medical community with some warning it's too soon to know if it's efficacious. Some saying it's working, therefore we should uh, apply it to the more severe cases. In either case, those with lupus are concerned that they may ultimately suffer uh, from lupus, which they already have, and being vulnerable to COVID-19 um, may find themselves between a rock and a hard place. Meanwhile, we're also being told that as millions are mandated to remain at home to curb coronavirus, domestic violence among women and children is on the rise. The quote is, domestic violence victims need a lot of the things that we take for granted. They need income, they need health care, they need law enforcement, they need courts, and sometimes they need domestic violence or homeless shelters, and all of those are impacted to varying degrees right now. The chief operations officer of the New York-based Stop Abuse Campaign says, and if a domestic violence victim is more isolated than normal, there are fewer people who can offer help. In several interviews um, conducted with police, uh, for the most part, They pointed to a spike in domestic violence as a result of the protracted shelter in place. Emergency calls for domestic violence, disturbances and violence grew on average between 10 and 30 percent over the past few weeks, according to a USA Today analysis of crime data from 53 law enforcement agencies in 24 states. Keep in mind those that you know might be in a situation like that. Check in on them. Make sure they're doing all right. Uh, and certainly keep those uh, who are in danger in prayer. Again, we're talking about women and children at higher risk of violence and sexual abuse during the coronavirus lockdown. The need for resources increases. The availability of said resources under these circumstances are reduced, and sheltering in place makes it a very untenable uh, situation. So keep that in mind as you're praying and reaching out to your neighbors. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break for news and traffic at the top of the hour, but we will be back. We'll also talk with Don Everts, his latest book, The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Second hour, we're glad to have you with us. Well, as promised, we're going to engage in conversation on a new book titled The Spiritually Vibrant 
home. Now, we'll talk about what that means and the background here. But in 2018, Lutheran Hour Ministries and the Barna uh, Group, they undertook a three-year collaborative research project. The first area of their research was spiritual conversations in the digital age, which paved the way for everyday Christians to kind of think differently about how to engage in spiritual conversations. Well, the second area of that research had to do with households of faith, specifically turning the lens of research toward how the Christian faith is being nurtured and lived out in private with the people who come and go from under these Christian roofs. Well, that's what this book is now about. It tells us what the research uh, uncovered and how we can live more vibrant homes. Again, the title is The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Don Everts is uh, reluctant to call himself an evangelist, but for decades he's found himself talking about Jesus with all sorts of skeptical and curious people. He is a writer for Lutheran Hour Ministries and teaching pastor for Bonham Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. He has also um, been a speaker and trainer for Alpha and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His many books, 13 I think is the number, include Jesus with Dirty Feet, I Once Was Lost, The Reluctant Witness, and The Spiritually Vibrant Home we'll be talking about here today. He and his wife, Wendy, live in a neighborhood founded over 200 years ago that now has two public schools, four churches, one mosque, one Hindu temple, and both a Costco and a Walmart. And we're delighted to have him with us today to talk about The Spiritually Vibrant Home. Well, Georgine, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to chat. Well, it's always uh, good to hear from you. Now, let's begin with this um, study that uh, in 2018 that Lutheran Hour Ministries and Barna Group undertook because it revealed some significant findings about how, uh, in the second half anyway, how uh, believers who self-identify as serious Christians live out their faith in their homes. Tell us a bit about how the study took place. Yeah, so uh, we were curious about how is the faith nurtured within households, within homes, how is it passed on? Uh, and so there were two phases to the research. Uh, first of all, we did a lot of interviews, lengthy interviews, with household members. And so we'd sit down with all the people in the household uh, to, to kind of learn and find out from different types of households what, how they interact with each other, not just about the faith, but in general. And then from there, we went into the second phase of the research project, which was the quantitative, which we, we, we did uh, uh, a few thousand surveys across the country uh, based on what we learned in our interviews. And so through these extensive surveys, uh, the really smart people at Barna were able to discern a lot about uh, what is happening inside of homes, uh, what the different dynamics are, and what actually uh, helps a home be more spiritually vibrant. Now, one might assume that this is the nuclear family that you're observing uh, and, you know, four individuals living within a household. But what you discovered is that the definition of a household and a family or a home, if you will, was broader than the average person might imagine. And it connected with the broader community, at least those homes that were spiritually vibrant. That's right. It, it, in two ways, I was surprised by this. So, so one mm-hmm. was just pure demographics. So... When I think of a household, I, I think of exactly what you said, right? That nuclear, you know, two parents, you know, two, 2.1 kids, or whatever it is. That's actually really rare uh, these days. And, and, and it was actually just a small, thin part of history in the U.S. where that was the normal, quote-unquote, normal household. What's more common these days are multi-generational households. Uh, there are a lot of single-parent households. 
uh, their roommate household, their people who live alone. Uh, about a quarter of all U.S. adults actually live alone. Uh, and so when you think about households, where we live, it's actually, there's a lot of diversity. Uh, and then the other thing that surprised me, Georgine, because we did the research, but then we also wanted to look at what does the Bible have to say about households? Mm-hmm. And the fascinating thing there was that a household in the Bible uh, was, was, it is actually a lot more, um, it, it's larger than we tend to think. And so you might think of it as like a core household, the people who live under the roof with you, uh, and then an extended household around there. And so households in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, were between 50 and 100 people, because it would be kind of your core household, but then it would be extended family, it would be friends, it would be travelers who needed a place to stay, it would be maybe people you worked with. And so that was also surprising. And so you combine this with the fact that one of the things Barna found is that the spiritual vibrancy within our home isn't just shaped and colored by the people in our home, it is shaped by a broader circle of people of what you might consider your extended household. Now, that was relatives. surprising to me as well. Yeah. And, and so it's people who visit your household. It's um, maybe a tutor who comes in to tutor. It's one of your ch- child's friends or boyfriend or girlfriend, or it's your aunt and uncle, or it's the grandparents coming in. All of these people who are in and out of the household really have a, an impact on the spiritual vibrancy within the home as well. Now, the group um, you surveyed, how did you select these groups and identify them as households of faith, if you will? Yeah, good, good question. So the really smart people at Barna are, are <laughs> really experienced at doing this. And so they know how to select and, and get at the kind of people that they want. So we wanted, we wanted a group of exemplars. And so we didn't just look for people who self-describe or self-select as Christian, but we wanted people who are practicing Christians. And in the world of Barna's research, that's not self-selected. People don't say, I am a practicing Christian. They have to answer certain questions, not correctly, they have to answer certain questions a certain way in order for Barna to say they are practicing Christians. So they're they're in the Bible, they're they're, uh, going to church on a regular basis, etc. So we started by wanting practicing Christians, and then we we narrowed it even further uh, through asking a question, how important is your faith to you? And then we we only uh, allowed people into into our data who who answered very important. My faith is very important to me. And so Barna had this way of narrowing down to a group of exemplars who, who are practicing Christians, their faith is very important to them, and then they took it a step further, and this is where all, all those people got into the study. But then Barna was able, just in the way they do, by looking at their various answers to you know, the, the dozens and dozens of questions that every person answered, and they were able to find evidence of where the faith is really thriving in the home. And so they took those, and they called them spiritually vibrant households, and they asked the question, what do they have in common with each other? And this is one of the really fun parts of the findings, are that there are three habits that correspond to spiritual vibrancy in the home. And the really good news, Georgine, is that those habits are things that actually any household, mm-hmm. whether, whether it's single parent, whether it's nuclear, whether it's urban, whether it's rural, 
Um, any household can work on and nurture these three habits, which correspond in a direct way to the spiritual vibrancy of those in the home. Which is exciting news. Uh, now, the title of the book yeah. is The Spiritually Vibrant Home, but the subtitle, which I initially thought, oh, that's kind of a clever way of putting it, but it's actually <laughs> more meaningful than I originally thought. The Power of, yeah. of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Explain what each of the three of them are, and then when we come back from our break, we'll talk about um, how we can become more vibrant in our households. What are these three things? Yeah, so these are the three habits, or this is my way of talking about the three habits. Messy prayers uh, means that it's people who are applying spiritual disciplines within the home, doing something in prayer with each other, doing something with the Bible with each other. And so I call that messy prayers, and we can talk about why I call it messy, but there's some... There's a way that the household is interacting with God together. And then you have loud tables. The, the second habit is uh, the presence of spiritual conversations. And so households that talk with each other have an open atmosphere, a dialogue with each other about their faith, about their doubts, about their emotions, the things they're feeling. There's something about having loud tables, uh, a ready conversation that also corresponds with spiritual vibrancy. And then the last one, and this, is the, this was the most surprising one that none of us guessed going in, is open doors. There, there is a strong correlation between households that practice hospitality and those that have a vibrant faith. And so there's a connection there too. So uh, messy prayers, loud tables, and open doors, all three of those are things anyone can grow in. Mm-hmm. And, that, and the research tells us it will correspond to a more vibrant faith within the home. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Don Everts, his latest book, The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. The book is published by InterVarsity Press and a great resource, uh, particularly as we are anticipating uh, the the lifting of this uh, quarantine in which we will once again have the opportunity to interact with our communities. This is a great study during the uh, the interim. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Don Everts. He's the uh, author of The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Uh, it features original research from Barna that I think is very helpful in helping us to understand how to enhance the vibrancy of our homes when it comes to spiritual things. Now, as mentioned, um, Don, the the subtitle of the book, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors, gives us a clue as to what contributes to a spiritually vibrant home. So let's take each of them, and maybe you can fill them out a bit so that we can recognize how I might uh, experience transformation in my own household as I embrace these things here. The Power of Messy Prayers. Prayers can be sometimes awkward when we uh, come together. Uh, talk a bit about how people engage in spiritual activity in the home and that contributes to the, their spiritual vibrancy. Yeah, uh, you know, it may, may not seem like a shock to people that, oh, if you're praying or in the Bible together as a household, your faith will be strong. So th- there's no huge shock there. But what was uh, really fun to find out uh, is that these didn't have to be high quality. In, in other words, I, I know a lot of dads, a lot of moms or grandparents who made me feel like, well, I, you know, I, I'm awkward when I pray out loud or I, I wouldn't know what to do in the Bible. You know, do, do I have to lead like a really good you know, family worship time or something like that? 
And one of the things that uh, they found in the research is, is the presence of spiritual coaching. But all spiritual coaching was is someone taking the initiative, someone nudging the household. So, so for example, uh, I, I did a whole class with families at my church when we were kind of learning these findings. And a lot of the dads said, I, I just don't pray out loud. I don't pray out loud in my home. And I said, okay, here's all you have to do. Just initiate it, but don't do it. So, so if, if, if someone says, a father or anyone, hey, should we have a prayer before we leave on our vacation? Or, hey, before we all go to bed, should we just have a quick prayer with each other? They don't have to actually do the prayer. It's just that act of initiating it. It's the act of saying, hey, let's, let's do this. Or, hey, could you pray for us? It's that nudge that makes the difference. And so the prayers can be messy. They're imperfect. They're not, you know what I mean? They don't have to be yeah, doctrinally yeah. sound. You don't need to hire a professional, in other words. <laughs> As I started to share these findings with people, it's amazing the, the kind of pressure that it takes off, mm -hmm. uh, where, where someone says, I, I want to have my faith be a more active part of my household. I just don't know what to do. And so to find out, all I have to do is nudge. All I have to do is say, hey, before, before we eat, before we cut the turkey, uh, could someone pray for us? You know, just that act of initiating... Uh, makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's one of the really good findings. Uh, now, we've created other tools to help people with prayer, to help people, you know, hang out in the Bible with each other, because we know that will be helpful for households. So at least in our ministries, we're creating resources. But the really good news is, it doesn't matter where you're starting. Messy prayers are fine. One of the questions you ask and have just answers is, are we meant to relate to God as a household? I think that that's been a big question mark for a lot of people. It, does it add to my spiritual vibrancy? Does it create a vibrancy in the home? And I appreciate the, the idea that, yes, uh, this is an area that we can, uh, we can engage in. Now, loud tables, <laughs> helping our households have <laughs> spiritual conversations. Yeah, this builds on our first year of research, which underscored the importance uh, and the vibrancy and the beauty and the delightfulness of having spiritual conversations. And what we found is that households that talk about life with each other will talk about their faith. Just being able to go live and talk about things that are happening, uh, it, it corresponds with greater vibrancy. And one of the interesting things that we found uh, uh, is that if uh, everyone in the household is all together, the odds are they're eating food. Mm -hmm. And so of all, you know, we asked about all kinds of activities that households do. And, and what we found is that food is this great uniter of a household, whether they're eating out at a restaurant or whether they're eating within the home, uh, that, it, that is this great opportunity that everyone is together. And so it's this great opportunity to say, how do we just nudge? Again, just nudge a little bit to have a louder table rather than, you know, everyone grabs their food and heads back onto their private screen, you know, whatever <laughs> they were watching, whatever game they were playing to just nudge and say, okay, how do we create an atmosphere that's open to conversation? How do, we, how do we spark conversations? And so if you're a household that doesn't talk a lot with each other, you probably don't want to start by saying, let's have a very deep, vulnerable conversation <laughs> yeah. about our faith. Okay, don't start there. Just, just dial it up a little bit. Hey, what are some highs and lows from your guy's day? You know, little, little things like that. We, we developed a deck of cards. Um, because we, we realize how important sparking conversations is for Christian faith in the home. So it's, they're playing cards. You can play, you know, war or, you know, go fish, whatever you want with them. 
But each card has a different conversation starter. And some of them are just everyday things. Some of them kind of deal with joys and pains of life. And then some of them talk about the faith. Just creating little tools like this to help families take that nudge. Let's nurture conversation a little bit more in our household. Again, you don't have to have perfect answers to any question that folks have. Um, but just knowing that having those conversations can really help. And, you know, the research revealed a lot that uh, moms outperform dads in this area. Grandparents outperform everyone. <laughs> uh, uh, everyone looks to grandparents or, or the wide, the largest number of people when we said, who, who would you prefer to talk to about life or about faith? Grandparents always ranked really high. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's encouraging to know people are actually looking for conversation. It just takes someone taking the initiative to spark those conversations. Yeah. And again, there's tools we can create so, so, uh, to help people do just that. I love one of the tools that you offer in the book that you start with light fare. You provide a steady diet and then offer a rich dessert, just kind of how you uh, engage in this kind of conversation. Again, you'll find that in the spiritually vibrant home. The last of the three is open doors, and that is hospitality, which uh, sometimes we feel intimidated because we think we have to have Martha Stewart level um, (laughs) uh, fare in our home. Yeah. Uh, But how do we open our doors and, and how does that contribute to a spiritually vibrant home? Yeah, it's interesting, Georgine, because, uh, you know, the, the researchers are very, very shy about causality, right? They're very shy to say, if you do A, B will happen. Mm-hmm. But they come close to it on this one. I mean, they, they said there is a strong correlation between how many people you have in and out of your home and the spiritual vibrancy in your home. And it doesn't even matter. This is what I find fascinating. That's true if the, if the household is purposefully hospitable, like God calls us to be, inviting only people in, inviting you know, travelers in to care for them and love them, but also if you're inviting people in your home to help you. <laughs> so, so let's say you need help uh, you know, working on your shower, or you need help with homework, or you need help with your finances, and you're inviting people into your home to help you. It doesn't matter, or, or uh, thirdly, if these are people who are just friends and friends like family or extended relatives, and they're in and out of your home. It doesn't matter why they're coming into your home. And so we don't completely understand this, but what we do know is that having people in and out of your household, so having a kind of extended household, nurtures the faith. And, and so there's some mystery there. We don't know exactly why that is, but we know that it's true. And to me, as a theologian, uh, I'm not... I guess I was surprised, but but then when you look at the scripture and how God yes. calls us to hospitality, and you know He knows what He's talking about. <laughs> it, it is it is a healthy thing, and that and I've seen this play out, Georgine. So so when we invite, you know, a dear friend Bosetti, who's Nigerian born, and uh, and and she's a friend from church, and when she comes over to the house, my kids and my mom who lives with us, they get to see her talk about her faith in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it grows their faith. But, Mike, we also, I have a non-Christian friend who comes into my home. And even having them in the home, everyone around gets to see me interact with them and gets to see my wife interact with them and answer their questions. And there's even something about that that seems to uh, grow our faith as well. So, in a culture where chronic loneliness uh, is rampant yes. uh, and depression related to loneliness is high, in, in, in a world where people are left alone and we need to create relationship in order to maybe someday, God willing, share the gospel. 
it's kind of fun to find out that having a more open door is, is actually good for you, too. Well, this is a great book. And again, I think it's a great COVID-19 study <laughs> because we're all perhaps appreciating more than before access that we once had to one another and enjoying fellowship That's with right. one another. Uh, the Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Don Everts, the book is published by InterVarsity Press. Thank you so much for your work and for talking with us here today. Well, Georgine, thank you for your work, and thanks for thinking alongside me for the last half hour. <laughs> you stay safe. You too. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Before I get into what's happening here in the state of Oregon, I want to remind you that as we are all sheltering in place, now is a great time to fill our minds with things that are, you know, actually meaningful and important. And I want to let you know that Salem Media Group is jumping into the movie business by streaming No Safe Place Spaces. It's a documentary. It's about free speech from comedian Adam Carella and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager, one of my all-time favorites. Now, No Safe Spaces was on the 2019 top-earning political documentaries. It earned a 99% audience score at Rotten Tomatoes, which is the highest you can get save one. Uh, It's the leading online aggregator of TV and movie reviews. Now, the film largely pokes fun at political correctness on college campuses, as it should, But despite the film's popularity, the filmmakers have been unable to strike a deal with traditional streamers. Well, it's the political content, and Hollywood doesn't really like it. So, Dennis Prager said, I'm going to Salem. And Salem, for the first time, is jumping into the business. No Safe Spaces is going to stream on demand for $19.99 for the next 60 days. Now, apart from Salem, the filmmakers are also negotiating a distribution deal that's going to put the um, the, the film on DVD, but that's going to be in midsummer. You've got time now. Now's the time to see it. Now, so, No Safe Spaces marks the first time Salem will show a feature film online, and I don't want you to miss out. The message of this film is about free speech and tolerance, and it's being blocked by intolerant forces in Washington, which I think proves the point you need to see the film. Now, you can go to nosafespaces.com and, in fact, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off. Again, that's nosafespaces.com, discount code SAVE25. See it today. See it tomorrow. Tell your friends it's going to be meaningful. It's going to help you think through the challenges of our day, even as we are sheltering in place. So check it out. Hey, I wanted to let you know that the coronavirus stimulus checks are on their way. At least that's what they're telling us. And here's how it works. With payments from the coronavirus stimulus package expected to reach American individuals and families as soon as this week. Here's the breakdown. The stimulus checks, um, much like a tax refund, will be handled by the Internal Revenue Service. So if you hear from them, don't panic. If you have filed your taxes electronically, the money will be transferred into your bank account via direct deposit. If you have filed a paper copy of your taxes or you've closed the bank account used to receive previous tax refunds, the government's going to send a paper check by mail. The House Ways and Means Committee said that the Treasury Department plans on setting up an online portal where people can submit their bank information to set up direct deposit to uh, speed this along as well. Now, how do I know when I've received the stimulus money? Well, according to the text of the bill, you're going to receive a note in the mail that confirms that the money should have been received. And if you don't have an income or haven't filed the tax return, 
Um, while most Americans are required to do that, certain low-wage workers and people with no income will need to file a 1040EZ form uh, in order to take advantage of these uh, uh, these resources. Social Security or disability payments, uh, if you have that, do you get a check? If you're a veteran, uh, what about you? If you live abroad, what about you? Well, the answer to all of those questions is yes. Although Americans living abroad will still have to meet the income requirements and have a Social Security number, Social Security recipients who do not file tax returns will be able to receive their payments based on information from other forms. And according to the bill, only non-resident aliens and those who have uh, claimed uh, by someone else as a dependent are, are not eligible. So the money is in the mail or nearly in the mail. Also, I wanted to mention Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced Wednesday that schools are going to remain closed for the remainder of the academic school year. She said at the press conference, I know how hard this is for every single Oregonian. I thank you for your sacrifice. I wish I could make it easier for everyone. I wish I could eliminate the frustration everyone feels. She also says she knows there's a lot of anxiety about how we're going to move forward. She acknowledged that vulnerable students are at the forefront of her mind when making policy decisions and expressed uh, concern for graduating seniors, saying all seniors who are on track to graduate will be able to do so. She said this is also uh, to uh, keep the Oregon graduation rate on track. Well, the closure is also extended to post-secondary education, where distance learning is also mandatory. Well, the briefing took place earlier this afternoon around one at the Oregon Health Authority. She was uh, joined by the Oregon Department of Education Director Colt Gill and OHS, or rather OHA Chief Medical Officer Dr. Dana Harangani. Uh, And by the way, the um, uh, Department of Education Director Colt Gill said when asked whether or not students who are uh, anticipating the cap and ground celebration, the matriculation from uh, elementary or middle school to high school and high school uh, to college, um, that they're not at all sure that that's going to be possible, but urged people to try to be creative in your respective communities in ways to acknowledge the accomplishments of these students. Also, we learned that the Oregon Health Authority uh, on Tuesday reported four new deaths due to the novel coronavirus as confirmed cases rose in Oregon to 1,181. The agency said three women from Marion County, ages 98, 83, and 71, and a 91-year-old Washington County woman were the latest patients to succumb to the illness, bringing the pandemic's death toll in the state of Oregon to 34. All had underlying medical conditions, according to health officials, though they didn't specify what those conditions were. Uh, Additionally, 49 residents in Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, Marion, Deschutes, Polk, Clatsop, Klamath, Lane, and Lynn counties tested positive for the virus in the last 24 hours. So that's distinct from those who have lost their lives and so far statewide 34, um, but those who have contracted COVID-19 in the last um, 24 hours, 49 residents. In the last day, just over 1,200 new people received coronavirus test results, slightly more than the previous uh, day's 1,100, according to figures from the health authority. And state health officials on Tuesday, they also started publishing a weekly report that provides some of the most detailed information to date um, on these coronavirus cases in Oregon. Now, the report, for one example, shows at least 114 of the 1,000 people known to have had the virus through Sunday were healthcare workers. So among the 1,099, 114 are healthcare workers. Another 132 reside in nursing or group homes, shelters, prisons, or other congregate living facilities. Nearly two-thirds of all COVID-19 patients identified by the state had a cough as one of their symptoms, according to 
the new report, making it the most common sign of the illness. Now, if you have a cough, that doesn't mean you have COVID-19, but it is the most common sign. Uh, I know for uh, for me, my mother who has asthma, she's 89. I go into her apartment every day. And of course, she lives in our home. We call it her apartment. Um, every day I wash the flesh practically off of my hands. I take her temperature. She has asthma, so the cough is common. But just to make sure there aren't additional uh, symptoms that we can um, we can identify. Now, among the symptoms that are mostly uh, most common, fever, shortness of breath, headaches, chills, and muscle aches, in addition to the most common symptom, and that is uh, coughing. As of Tuesday, there are now uh, known coronavirus cases linked to 29 of Oregon's 36 counties. Now, of the state's known cases, 551 people, or 47%, are under the age of 50, and another 203, or 17%, are over the age of 70. Now, you would have thought, because there's been such emphasis on um, the elderly, that that number would have been flipped, but it just goes to show you that it doesn't matter what age you are, uh, this virus can impact you. So 47% are under the age of 50, 17% over the age of 70. At least 329 of the state's uh, COVID-19 patients, or 29%, have been hospitalized at some point during their illness, according to the health, the Oregon Health Authority. 69 of them are currently on ventilators. So that's a relatively low number to the overall uh, number. State health officials have reported 29 previous COVID-19 deaths in Oregon, Um, These are residents from a number of counties. Their ages ranged from 59 to 93, and these are deaths. And the Oregon Department of Veterans Affairs separately announced the death of a resident at the Edward C. Allworth Veterans Home in Lebanon on Friday night, who was tested positive for the virus. The obituary said McHenry Funeral Home and Crematorium, uh, their website identified the man as a 74-year-old from Philomath. Nationwide, 387,000 Americans have tested positive for COVID-19, while the number of deaths uh, rose uh, to more than 12,000, including at at least 400 in Washington. At least 33 states, as well as Washington, D.C., have reported 1,000 or more of these cases. So it is a, a, a serious pandemic. And I'm reminded as I rattle off these numbers, particularly of uh, those in the state of Oregon, that each one of those numbers represents a distinct individual that made up our community. They were Oregonians who lived among us and worked among us and thrived, um, we, for the most part, uh, with us. They are family members. They have people who are grieving their loss, their friends and community. So I don't want to just rattle off numbers age 98, 83, 71 as if um, they were just mathematic formulations. These are lives that have ended as a consequence of this pandemic. And it is a sobering reminder that every one of us has the opportunity to play a significant role in how the trajectory of this uh, curve uh, moves forward. If we are responsible to do what's in not only our best interest, but in the best interest of our community and our neighbors, then perhaps we can prevent more deaths from occurring, more people suffering the consequence of COVID-19, even if they recover, and uh, we can get past this more quickly than um, some might expect. So it's a good reminder. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up and let you know what's coming up tomorrow on the program as well. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Carol Kent. She's the co-author of Staying Power, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worst. 
well, we might be in the midst of what you could describe as its worst. So this will be uh, a good opportunity to rethink how we can stay together, even though we might be getting on each other's very last frayed nerve. Carol Kent tomorrow on the program. James Otson reminds us that the coronavirus crisis creates an opportunity and it reveals this about ourselves and others. Now, crises, they disrupt lives. They bring hardship and even tragedy. But they can also clarify what is truly important and bring out the best in humanity. Let's hope for that uh, outcome. Americans have long enjoyed unprecedented levels of wealth. The astonishing array of goods and services and conveniences available to us has enabled us to solve or at least alleviate problems that previous generations considered intractable. Yet this multitude of blessings can also lead us to expect life to be painless and free from disappointment or tragedy or heartbreak. After all, we're Americans. Shocks like the pandemic now shaking society remind us of an unaltered truth. Life is indeed hard. There will never be a time when we have conquered pain, suffering, and misfortune once and for all. Ours is an imperfect world. Bad things will inevitably happen. Now, some may believe we live, well, we have a right to be happy. But as our Declaration of Independence observes, unalienable human rights include only the pursuit of happiness, not happiness itself. There can be no guarantee we'll attain happiness. It's not a gift that can be bestowed upon us, and no one can owe it to us as a right. On the contrary, happiness is an achievement. It takes hard work to achieve, and even with hard work, it remains uncertain and even elusive at times. In the United States and throughout much of the rest of the world, businesses have shut down. Schools have sent students home where they'll stay through the end of the year, at least in our region. And governments have restricted activities to only essential functions. As hard as it is on us, the need to distinguish what is essential from what is non-essential presents us with an opportunity. It allows us to discover, for example, that some of the non-essentials are, in fact, well, luxuries. Did you ever think about yourself enjoying luxuries? We tend to underestimate the value of some of the things we enjoy. They include things we might like to do or have. If we already have all the essentials base covered and have time and money to spare. It's time of, in times of peace and plenty, we can convince ourselves that luxuries are actually necessities and we can find ourselves worrying about things that emergencies expose as not as important as we had once thought. So what's truly important? Family, friends, taking personal initiative to help neighbors who need our help. When governments and businesses and the larger structures of society can no longer take care of the things that once well, they once did or claimed they would, the responsibility falls, well, on us because our time, our money, our love and concerns are limited. However, we cannot do everything we might like. So we have to decide what is most important to put other things on a back burner. Crises remind us that we are an active, not passive species, and that work, industry, and perseverance, even in the face of disappointment and defeat, are indispensable elements of a life worth leading. The fact that life is hard doesn't mean that we should give up hope. On the contrary, crisis gives us an opportunity to step back and reevaluate our lives, to ask ourselves what truly matters and what does not matter, and to refocus our attention and reorder our lives according to what gives our lives genuine meaning and purpose. Crises remind us that we are an active, not passive species. Emergencies can remind us that a truly happy life is not comprised of idle passing of time, of momentary pleasure, or of tepid contentment. It consists instead of striving and contending against an unforgiving and sometimes merciless world. 
and in finding joy in the small but profound graces of family and friends and neighbors who need one another. Part of the dignity, even beauty of humanity lies precisely in our ability to rise to the challenge we face. We join in solidarity with one another, we unite in service to one another, and we do not acquiesce in the face of even great hardship. Yes, it's true, COVID-19 poses tremendous challenges and will leave too, too many tragedies in its wake. I mentioned some of them just moments ago. But we have uh, overcome even greater challenges in the past, and we will do so again, because great challenge sparks great energy and courage and perseverance. It summons faith and solidarity, and in so doing, it reveals the best of humanity. And sometimes we need to be reminded that, yes, there is a streak, even among those who struggle, of goodness in humanity. Goodness that, by the way, needs to be redeemed, and we would do well to remember that we also have an opportunity during this season to share our faith to those who need redemption. Well, once again, tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with Carol Kent. She's the co-author of Staying Power, Building a Stronger Marriage When Life Sends Its Worth. And I want to remind you that uh, on Friday, we have a Good Friday special to remind us of the horrific and tragic events that took place on that Friday two millennia ago that won for us our salvation. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a season in which God lost control, but it was precisely his plan and purpose that resulted in our salvation and the redemption of humankind. And um, we're going to reflect on that tomorrow, or I should say Friday on the program. So I hope you will join us for that. Meanwhile, I want to remind you that today happens to be Holy Wednesday. And I know for many of us, um, we don't refer to uh, Wednesday in the Holy Week as being anything uh, in particular, but in the Orthodox tradition, Wednesday is referred to as Spy Wednesday, the last Wednesday before Easter Sunday, celebrated uh, uh, because it is traditionally thought of as the day that Judas Iscariot conspired to betray Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. It's uh, the beginning of Matthew 26. It appears to place Judas plotting at two days before Good, Pride, uh, Good Friday. It also represents the, uh, the day uh, when uh, Jesus was at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany when a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of this expensive ointment and poured it on his head. Now, the disciples, you'll recall, they thought it was wasteful and objected. They argued that it could have been sold for a large sum of money and distributed to the poor. And of course, Judas wasn't really thinking about the needs of the poor. But Jesus pushed back and said, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it in preparation for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And I've just fulfilled that by sharing it with you once again. Well, apparently pure nard in that day is a liquid from the spikenard root, which only grows in the Himalayan mountains. It was difficult to obtain. It was quite pricey. The fragrance of the oil was so strong that when Jesus was anointed, the scent filled the entire room. It was unmistakable. Some have suggested that in light of how soon he was crucified after that event, that scent of the oil might have remained with him and comforted him in his agony on the cross. So just something to think about on this holy Wednesday. Hey, we are out of time. I want to thank you for listening to The Georgine Rice Show and thank James Blend and Clark Hilton for producing and engineering today's program. Have a great night. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow.
Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.